listening to KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM, and this is Methods of the Madness, a show about the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and today we have Brahm Amadi with us, the founder of People's Community Market. Welcome, Brahm. Good to be here. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Sure. Well, I've been working in the community food movement, so to speak, for about the last 10 years, and the majority of my work has been in West Oakland, right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Low-income neighborhood, about 25,000 residents, predominantly African-American and Latino. And that community has uh, faced for a long time a, a real problem of having access to good quality uh, groceries and food products um, immediately in the neighborhood in a convenient and affordable way. Um, in fact, the neighborhood has not had a full-service grocery store for quite some time and, and has really suffered on and off over a number of decades uh, having a consistent grocery uh, available. And the real issue with this is not just that it's a complete hassle for residents because what it means is that uh, they have to leave the neighborhood by and large to shop. And for a lot of residents, they don't own a, they don't own a vehicle, so they're relying on public transportation or walking. Uh, so it's really hard to do that on a consistent basis. Um, and so they tend to rely on what, what is locally available, and, and uh, that tends to be predominantly corner stores or liquor stores, uh, which, of course, are not really focused on fresh food or healthy food options, per se, or even a, a, a satisfactory range of, of products that, that residents can really rely on. Um, but nonetheless, people are somewhat depending on the options that are conveniently available, again, because they're somewhat bound to the neighborhood, or at least a good portion of residents are. Uh, and so this is having pretty substantial health uh, impacts in, in West Oakland. Uh, of course, our country is at this point you know, seized with a, with a public health crisis, particularly on obesity uh, and diabetes and what have you. Uh, communities like West Oakland have disproportionately high rates of all of these problems. So West Oakland uh, is in the 67th percentile for diabetes, which is very, very high. Uh, and uh, almost half of residents are overweight or, or considered obese. Um, and diabetes is very, very prevalent through the neighborhood. And, of course, there are a lot of different factors that contribute to uh, health or ill health. Uh, but certainly diet is one of the most important factors uh, that um, really matters. And so 10 years ago, uh, I and uh, a number of my colleagues, I was doing community organizing work at the time, really began to look at this problem specifically in West Oakland. Uh, and the way that came about for us was that we were uh, having meetings with community residents around environmental justice campaigns, uh, which is looking at other sort of issues of social and economic equity and land use and policy and health. Um, and in those meetings where we're talking about campaigns and what do residents want in terms of uh, what they're demanding from, for example, a, a polluter in the neighborhood or from, from a, city, um, a city government, uh, we were often getting this feedback that a big problem in the neighborhood was just not being able to get access to good foods, um, affordable, particularly fresh, and particularly in the perishable product categories. Uh, and, and we just kept hearing it again and again and again. Um, and residents, even at that time, 10 years ago now, were already making the connections between their diets and their health. You know, it's all the rage now to be talking about the connections between, uh, you know, eating and prevention and, and health outcomes. Uh, and it's often assumed that low-income people aren't making those connections. But, but that's completely wrong. They very much are. And so they were really communicating that with us. And I think felt that as organizers, you know, we should do something about it. 
Okay. So, and, and you know, historically, there's always been low-income communities. Has it always been that they haven't been serviced or has there been a change over times where kind of as supermarkets came into vogue, they just couldn't service those communities? And there used to be like a neighborhood grocery store everywhere, right? There did, yeah. I think that the beginning of this problem uh, really began uh, sort of post-World War II, uh, moving into uh, a development pattern really across the United States, um, where you started to see fairly substantial shifts in population from urban cores to new suburbs. So, you know, a lot of GIs came back and they were able to get a home and what have you. Uh, so you saw essentially a flight of capital uh, as people moved. Uh, and as a result of that, one of the results of that was a concentration of lower-income people in the remaining urban core. Um, and so the economies sort of lost their foundation. Um, so that was a key factor. The spending power just dropped to the point where for a lot of grocers, uh, they just couldn't sustain themselves in, in, in that kind of a neighborhood anymore because of the demographic changes. Uh, at the same time, the reality was that the supermarkets were following the shift. So they wanted to move to the suburbs as well, partly because that's where the spending power was going. <clears throat> and secondly, because there was an important development in the in industry around that time, around 1950s, uh, which is the dominant retail model today, which is towards larger footprint store formats. Uh, you know, the economies of scale and efficiencies that can come from that, that sort of consolidation of a larger market range and what have you, and, and the volume that could be derived, all was much more attractive and sort of the new paradigm uh, in the supermarket and grocery business. The other very important piece to that is the availability of large land for parking lots. And of course, in the 50s was the real rise of the home ownership for the single family in, in the United States. So I think we saw both uh, interesting trends in uh, urban development and policy and, 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 and planning and sort of overall shifts in population. And we also saw some interesting changes in the industry itself towards consolidation, towards larger footprint formats. And as a result, the shutting down of both smaller stores uh, and, and, and stores particularly in these urban cores, which had been somewhat decimated as a result of this, this trend. Okay, yeah, interesting. This is this is we're listening to Brahma Mahdi here on Methods of the Madness on KALX Berkeley, and so tell us a little bit about how your background and how you kind of you got in. You said you were community organizing. How did you get there? I got into community organizing really when I was a kid. So I grew up in uh, far eastern LA County in Southern California, and um, my early teens, I kind of got turned on by some community issues, particularly around environmental justice. The neighbor I lived in was predominantly Latino, and there were a number of uh, environmental problems there, you know, polluting sites and factories that were, you know, emitting carcinogens into the air or, you know, th that particular neighborhood had a higher rate of asthma or cancer or whatever. Um, and so I got pretty into that really early on, um, you know, like 16, 17 years old and um, just started volunteering and getting involved in these different campaigns. And then I went to college. I went to Santa Cruz. Um, and I started coming up to the Bay Area on the weekends and volunteering with environmental justice organizations here, uh, like Communities for a Better Environment and Green Action and Literacy for Environmental Justice, um, helping out with different uh, campaigns around the Bay Area. And then eventually uh, got a job as an organizer for one of those organizations. Uh, and did the environmental justice work for several years and was also doing youth development work as well, primarily with urban youth, low-income youth. Um, and then, you know, this 
this food access problem emerged and kept coming up. And, and I and my colleagues who eventually went on to found People's Grocery, the nonprofit organization, um, really f- wanted to make a, a shift personally in the work we were doing in creating change and, and social justice in the world. I think we were getting a little bit tired uh, of the organizing model that we were working in, um, long hours, not very gratifying, um, and really hard, frankly, to feel a sense of accomplishment outside of the objective of shutting something down. That was kind of the, the measure of success at the time in the environmental justice movement. Of course, to its credit, it's changed since. It has very different kind of objectives these days. But back then, your goal was to shut somebody down and get rid of them altogether. Um, and while that was absolutely essential uh, and, pro- you know, very likely is contributing to better health in the community or at a minimum preventing more sickness, it was really hard to feel a sense of uh, real impact in terms of advancing progress, especially in low-income neighborhoods. And so we were at the same time beginning to get turned on around this whole idea of social entrepreneurship, which 10 years ago, you know, 2001, 2002, was really starting to emerge as this very popular thing here in the United States. And uh, we attended the Social Enterprise Alliance Conference and then eventually Social Venture Network Conference. And we were like, this is really neat. We could create a business in the neighborhood that creates jobs and creates economic value while at the same time having an impact on some social or health need. In our case, we were interested in this food issue. Um, And so we initially thought that the best way to go actually was to open a grocery store. I think we had the the sense, even though we had no experience in that business, that a grocery store was going to provide the most convenience to the neighborhood um, in terms of a fixed location, and regular operating hours, and a broad selection, and what have you. Um, but we also knew that we didn't have the know-how to do that. We had no business background whatsoever, none of us. Um, and so we decided to sort of keep that vision and that goal of opening a, a community grocery store that had, you know, be, goals beyond just retailing quality foods, really w- could provide a means of engaging the community and, 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 and offering additional value where it uh, was needed in the neighborhood. Um, but in the short term, we would develop smaller food projects that could, on the one hand, begin to address the immediate local need in West Oakland, and on the other hand, could begin to give us that firsthand experience and sort of knowledge and track record, so to speak, of marketing fresh foods and healthy foods in the low-income neighborhood uh, and providing education and providing job training to that population uh, with this sort of sense that eventually we could come full circle to pursuing the opening of a grocery store and that we would have a stronger foundation to do that with. So People's Grocery was the, your the main attempt to realize this vision, right? Exactly. Was- it was sort of solution 1.0, so to speak, for us. It was a, it was a nonprofit organization. It still exists and it's doing very well today. Um, and it it um, it became a mix of these various projects. Um, we worked a lot in creating and experimenting with smaller scale food projects that could distribute food to the neighborhood. So, for example, uh, we our very first project was called the Mobile Market. We literally took an old postal truck and we tricked it out uh, into a small grocery store on wheels. And this is back before food trucks were the rage. Um, and we drove around the neighborhood on a fixed route and schedule three or four days a week, stopping at central locations and carried a mix of fresh and packaged goods. Um, and learned a lot and engaged a lot of people in that process. This truck was bright purple and orange. It had an 800-watt sound system. It smelled like French fries because it ran on biodiesel. And so we caught a lot of attention. And that was really our goal. 
as community organizers, that's what we knew how to do was interact with with the neighborhood and and and, and start conversations and, and what have you. Um, and so we developed a number of different small projects over the years, like the mobile market. We also did a lot in urban agriculture, developing a variety of food production projects, whether they were school gardens or community gardens or uh, greenhouse projects. Uh, and we even ran a four-and-a-half-acre farm for a number of years. Uh, and we also, and, and I think increasingly, uh, continue to go deeper and deeper into education as well, health education, food education. Um, because we saw that as really a fundamental piece to the whole equation, uh, not only uh, of solving the access problem in the sense that uh, encouraging people to try out and purchase healthier foods that are better for you know their health needs, um, but that could also in the long term create the kind of market conditions to succeed at a retail effort um, by having some sort of critical mass of residents that we're really wanting to support a local independent grocer and really having an understanding around what that was and why it was great for the neighborhood in terms of uh, the economic multiplier and the job creation and what have you. So People's Grocery really developed a many, many different projects. And part of our approach was just to experiment kind of wildly with ideas. We were the first to do a mobile market in the country um, and learned a lot from that. And since many, many other groups around the U.S. uh, have developed and are even today running mobile markets. Uh, And we've been able to share our learning and sort of what we documented and learned from it uh, with those those projects. Um, And then I think around about 2008 or so, we sort of assessed uh, that we, we had come to that place in the organizational life cycle uh, where we were well positioned to return back to pursuing this original goal of opening a grocery store. We had built this huge base in the neighborhood. We had all of this firsthand experience and street cred, so to speak. The organization was locally and nationally recognized for its efforts. So People's Grocery didn't wasn't actually a storefront. It was never was a storefront. It was it was the mobile truck. It was a bunch of other exactly. projects. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and the, the name is a little confusing. It, yeah. it it came out of our original idea of opening a grocery store. Gotcha. Um, and when we decided to put that on hold, we still liked the name, and so we, <laughs> we kept the name and called the nonprofit People's Grocery. And um, at, so at that point in 2008, we said, okay, I think, I think we're ready for this. And, and the nonprofit can provide this strong foundation uh, for going forward uh, and bringing all of our insight and sort of knowledge from all these different projects and experiments and all of the feedback that we had gathered from residents um, to, to implement a business model. Um, and, and a really important piece behind all of this wasn't just that we felt ready organizationally, but we were seeing that these small-scale projects ultimately were not effective at closing the gap and meeting the need at the scale at which that gap and need exists. So West Oakland uh, is a, a really a larger food market than people might automatically assume. It, it's about uh, a $60 million annual market for groceries. And of that, about 70% of those expenditures are leaking out of the neighborhood every single year, uh, presently. Uh, and so that's substantial leakage and substantial losses to the local economy. But what it really re- represents, probably more importantly, is just the total hassle and headache for these residents that have to leave West Oakland every time they want to shop at a full-service grocery store. So let me ask a question about the the business of this because – you know, it's really interesting how you talked about your evolution of coming from 
breaking down barriers or breaking down organizations that you thought were, you know, were, were socially injustice or, yeah. or and going to building and being a socially entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, but you didn't know anything about groceries. You yeah. didn't know anything about this business. So, you know, you think that the Safeways of the world, they've got a lot of numbers behind their decisions to, to where they're going to open yeah. their market. So if there's such a big market there, how are you able to come in and actually create an organization that is able to, you know, be sustainable from an economic perspective? Yeah. Well, I think there are a few few points to the, answering that. I think the the most immediate one is that, frankly, the majority of established operators have not been interested in low-income neighborhoods for a long time, almost irrespective of the market demand and spending power that's there. That has a lot to do with, I think, a, a related and secondary point, which is, that again, the dominant business model today in the grocery and supermarket business uh, is a very large footprint format. And in a neighborhood like West Oakland where you have high density – in development, uh, it's very cost prohibitive to be able to build a store of that size. So, for example, there was a recent attempt by the city of Oakland to bring in a large operator. They, the plan was to build a 70,000-square-foot store in West Oakland, uh, which the numbers, again, the market numbers would support. The problem was to do this, they had to acquire and assemble four or five different properties together. Um, and all these other levels of complexity around contamination costs and cleanup costs uh, and what have you. And so at the end of the day, the project just uh, didn't pencil. And yet these operators, uh, like Safeway, only know at this point, I, I would wager anyway, only know how to operate at the larger footprint. They no longer really know how to go back to a smaller neighborhood scale format or are not really interested in doing that anymore. They've got a good thing going. And as long as they can continue to penetrate new markets where that format can operate, there's not a lot of incentive for them to really change their business model or spin off a different one. So your advantage is the scale you're looking at. You're, you're okay with being a smaller operator. In fact, that's exactly, I think, what is needed uh, to appropriately serve this neighborhood. So I'm very, very biased in favor of independent grocers. Partly because, A, I actually think that they face less barriers to entry in these type of market situations. Uh, the, the costs of entry can be lower because they're tending to operate at a smaller footprint. But also because they can serve a specific local community in a much more customized, even intimate way. That grocer knows exactly what that set of residents and families wants and can very quickly cater to those preferences versus a centralized, you know, buying chain in a large corporation, the chain of command to make a small decision around a product shift on a, on a particular shelf can take weeks or months if it ever happens. Uh, and the, the service isn't nearly as good. Um, not only in terms of, for example, the knowledge and the friendliness of, of the staff, uh, but the relationship knowing people's names, their families, uh, what's going on in their lives, just really being able to have that rapport. Um, you know, I may be a little bit romantic in this area, but I, I really think that people still very much desire that quality. In fact, I think there's a resurgence in a lot of neighborhoods, not just low-income neighborhoods, but many neighborhoods, to have connection uh, with their local community, their local economy, the businesses that are there and that serve them. 
uh, and go beyond just an informal transaction to actually having some degree of a relationship. And I think all of that gives independent grocers a, a, a competitive advantage in these marketplaces where they can adapt and be much more nimble. They can serve much more effectively. Uh, and the data really proves that, that they tend to outperform larger format operations that operate in similar demographic marketplaces. Uh, and they most certainly out-innovate because, again, they're not infringed by a large central decision-making process. So if they want to partner with a church or nonprofit or bring in a farmer, and they can do all of that with, with very little fanfare, uh, whereas larger chains have to go through a lot to kind of bring those kinds of changes into the way they do business. Very interesting, yeah. Bureaucracy is bad. So <laughs> I think in this case, it, it limits the um, nimbleness that's necessary to succeed in, in what is already a you know, fairly challenging demographic area. Sure. Okay, well, we are listening to Methods of the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Ali Nazar, and today we have Brahma Mahdi on with us. He is the founder of People's Community Market. So let's talk about your latest manifestation of the vision, yeah. People's Community Market. So you said in about 2008, you realized that you had enough street cred to start actually building the vision of an actual market. So yeah. where are we with that now? So I left the nonprofit uh, in 2010. We hired a great executive director, Nikki Henderson, who took my place. And, and then I went and actually finished getting my MBA and took some time off after 10 plus years of nonprofit burnout and what have you. Uh, and then I, it's sort of late 2010, fall of 2010, jumped into the process of planning and design uh, around, you know, the premise that uh, there needed to be uh, some real uh, customization uh, and adaptation of the retail business model to the specific neighborhood. Uh, whether that was in format and footprint, uh, whether that was in product mix uh, and sort of targeting the cultural desires of the particular neighborhood, whether that was in the way that we partnered with nonprofit or healthcare organizations to be able to support our offerings with the education and the community engagement pieces. Uh, and so we spent about nine months going through a pretty intensive planning process ranging from, you know, architectural design uh, to really thinking about personnel structure and ownership structure and all these, you know, typical questions that a, that a business uh, is going to go through. Uh, and then around about, I suppose, spring of 2011, uh, we came to a place where we felt ready to begin pursuing financing. Um, uh, and where we began to get our, our momentum was through an interaction with a, a fund that launched in July of 2011 called the California Freshworks Fund. This is a fund that was spearheaded by the California Endowment. Uh, which brought in a number of other philanthropic and health partners. Uh, Kaiser, for example, is a partner in this, uh, Calvert Foundation. And uh, eventually brought in a number of private banking institutions to contribute capital as well. It's a very large fund, and it is solely dedicated to financing grocery stores and underserved communities in the state of California. And it has a certain degree of commitment to independent grocers, I think with a similar analysis that independent grocers tend to serve these better, these communities better or can at least customize more appropriately. And um, also a certain commitment to grocers that are themselves committed to healthy food propositions, whether that's the core of their brand and their offering or they're willing to uh, make changes uh, and, and make that a more central feature of their business model. Uh, so the California Freshworks Fund um, 
express an interest in providing a loan to us. And of course, we were a startup. Uh, and so they said, you know, you guys are a perfect fit in terms of your business plan and value proposition and brand and positioning. Uh, and we would definitely consider a fairly substantial loan, potentially up to 70% of your overall financing needs. However, you got to go raise your equity capital first. Um, that's just an underwriting requirement for them. And so we said, wow, okay, you know, that sounds like an opportunity that we can utilize as leverage when we talk to private capital sources that we have this potential loan opportunity, fairly significant one. What's the total amount you need to, to launch? It's a bit of a moving target, but it's basically at this point somewhere between 3.4 and $3.6 million in fees. So you need, for listeners, you need about a million bucks of cash from an investor, and the rest of that money will be made up via a loan from the fund you're talking about? Ideally. Something like yeah, that. Okay. And, and we're trying to uh, be optimistic that they will continue that commitment with us. Great. So um, it's a it's a beautiful vision. You're in the throes of the entrepreneurship right now, which this show is very much about innovation. And I've talked to people in different parts of their innovative cycle. Right now, it's kind of a really important time for you guys because you're doing the financing part. But let's say that that happens. And let's say that I always like to end the show to talk about the vision. Let's say five, ten years from now, people's community market, it exists. The vision comes full. Yeah. What's it going to look like? What would, in your wildest dreams, what kind of impact would it have on West Oakland? Well, there are, are three, minimally three, there are probably really four needs that, that we're hoping to have some impact on. The first and foremost, obviously, is, is uh, just improving the community's access to good foods. Fresh perishable products in particular. That's the, the largest gap in the neighborhood. Um, and and also prepared foods is, is one of the other big gaps in the community. West Oakland not only lacks grocery stores, it lacks any kind of quality sit-down, family-oriented eatery or restaurant. There's no cafes or anything like that at all. Um, so prepared foods program is a fairly substantial part of this, and, and we would love to have a really interesting, fun, and somewhat targeted menu uh, to the cultural uh, neighborhood, um, particularly the African American and Latino community. Um, the other, another really big need in the neighborhood is is sort of uh, safe, positive places for social interaction. Again, no cafes, no real community venues where people can just sort of show up and hang out and socialize, or attend an event or check out a performance or anything like that. Again, residents pretty much have to leave the neighborhood to be able to participate in those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, they're doing it. And so we know that if there was a local option, they would likely participate in that. So an interesting part of our plan and vision for this is that in addition to the retail store, the retail format and footprint where we're selling product, uh, there is an additional space that we're calling the front porch. And the front porch is basically a, a semi-open-aired uh, community venue and, and patio and courtyard. So it has a, a stage and seating and our private plans actually have a children's play area, a little ripoff from the McDonald's playbook and have a little children's space where, so parents can bring their kids and hang out um, and really be able to provide a positive venue. So the basic idea is that what can we do to enhance both the attributes of our store as a destination in the neighborhood beyond just quality food retailing uh, and what additional value can we provide to our customers if they're coming to shop already? What else can we do in a cost-effective way that uh, serves them better and meets some additional need and ideally for us has a, a, an upside in terms of our, our business? 
Um, so I think you know what I would love to see is obviously a thriving retail business that uh, is linked into the sort of regional economy of food economy in terms of we work with a lot of great vendors and producers and bringing great foods that are available in this region to this neighborhood. Um, but there's also just a lot of it's, – it's a hub. It's a lot of interaction and hanging out and conversation uh, taking place. So it's not necessarily purely about – sales and, and, and moving product out the door, it's really being able to provide a positive space so people feel like they can come to and hang out and socialize fairly often. I think another really important need uh, is, is uh, residents want a lot more knowledge and information around uh, health and prevention and, 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 and uh, eating healthier and how to do that. Uh, and so we'd like to be able to provide resources to the neighborhood and for people's community market to be a resource to the neighborhood. Uh, for that type of information. The way we're thinking about doing that is mostly through partnerships with nonprofit and healthcare organizations because, for one, they have the expertise already, uh, so we don't need to build that expertise to provide uh, those services. And secondly, to be honest, we won't have the margins to be able to afford these sort of enhanced programs, nutritionists on staff or cooking classes. That'll be beyond our budget, especially if, A, we want to, make sure we're priced affordably to the neighborhood, and, and B, we want to pay good wages to our employees. But we have 10 years of history of working with nonprofit and healthcare organizations in this immediate area already, and so we're really excited to bring them all into the fold as partners and sort of figure out a working model where they're very much integrated into it, and we're coordinating and providing space and promotions for those uh, sort of non-product-based offerings. Okay, great. Well, a wonderful vision. You've been listening to Brahm Amadi, uh, who's the founder of People's Community Market. And this is Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. And to learn more about People's Community Market, Brahm, how should they, how should our listeners get involved? Our website is peoplescommunitymarket.com. One word, peoplescommunitymarket.com. We have a blog and all kinds of information about our project, its current status, generally what the plan is and where we're heading. Of course, we're on Facebook and we're on Twitter as well, and you can find us there. Uh, and please pay close attention. We will, I expect, get approval fairly soon for this public offering, and we are really going to want to be getting the word out for people who want to make a local investment, want to make a community investment, or interested in doing something different than the sort of, you know, mutual fund on Wall Street. Well, great. Thanks for being here, Brom. And thank you for listening. This is Methods of Madness on KALX Berkeley. You can learn more about us at org. Have a great Friday, everybody.